Man, you may be seated, and as you are, I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to, once again, the Gospel of Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to go ahead and read verses 13 through 16. I've already had you sit down, so I won't have you stand up again, but let's go ahead and read uh, these verses together from the board. Matthew 5, 13 and 16. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord this morning. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, when Jesus is choosing his apostles and he is uh, bringing his kind of team together, if you will, Mark tells us that he put them together for two purposes. And those purposes are spelled out for us in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, no, verse 16. And here's what he says. He says, he chose them in order that, first of all, that they may be with him, that they may be with Jesus, and number two, that he might send them out to preach. And so all of everything that the apostles were to do, Jesus brought them together in order that those two purposes will be reached, that they will be with Jesus and that they will be sent out to preach. In Acts chapter four, verse 13, whenever Peter and John are, are speaking before the religious leaders um, in the Sanhedrin, they are amazed, even though that these are uneducated and common men, they, they see their boldness and they're amazed at their boldness and they can only conclude that these men are men who have been with Jesus. Beloved, when we are with Jesus, it gives us a boldness to go out into the world. And so the connection here that we see is that in Matthew, beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 through 12 talk about the Beatitudes, kind of the Beatitudes, if you will. And those are things, those are characteristics that, are, that we find in Christ but as we are with Christ, those are characteristics, as we place our faith in Christ, that is characteristics of biblical faith. That is what biblical faith looks like. And we talked about that last week. And just like you can't go out in the sun and spend exposure time in the sun without being tanned, without being changed by the sun, in the same way, you cannot be in the presence of Jesus Christ and not be changed. You will begin to express his character. You will begin to show the fruit of that exposure. And so we have been with Jesus and we see the, the beatitudes of that. And now this morning, out of those beatitudes, we now see what are the core responsibilities of a disciple. What on earth are we here for? What has Jesus left us to do? 
And this morning, I, my prayer is that by the time we leave, that, that you will commit and that I will commit. And as a church, that we will commit to being light and salt in our world as Jesus will instruct us to do this morning. That we will be light and we will be salt in our community. So, so just to give you a little uh, background of what's going on here, just to remind you of where we've been, in Matthew chapter four, verses 12 through 25, we saw the beginning of the life of a disciple. And Jesus calls us into the disciple life. He calls us into the kingdom in those verses. And how do we come into the kingdom? We come by faith alone. And what does biblical faith look like? That's where we see the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verses one through 12, that biblical faith will have these eight core characteristics. These are the core characteristics of the Christian life. And then out of that, as those things become more and more of a reality in our lives, out of that, we find these two core responsibilities that we are to be salt of the earth and we are to be light of the world. Someone uh, said to me one time that true ministry happens when what God is doing within you flows out of you to others. It always begins inside of us and then it flows out of us to others. And so this morning, we're gonna see that as, as Jesus gives us these two core responsibilities, we see that we must be committed to our responsibilities to the kingdom if we're gonna be citizens of his kingdom. Being citizens of any nation, being citizens of any, uh, of any kingdom always involves civic duties. And so if you will, these are the two civic duties of a disciple. These are two civic duties of the citizen of, of Christ's kingdom, or they are our two core responsibilities of life in Christ. He says here, in both verses, in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And once again, in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And beloved, if you were to read that in the original, you would see that it is very emphatic how, how Jesus says this. It's a very emphatic statement. You are the light of the world. In other words, this is not something that we can outsource to others. I'm so thankful that we have ways in which we can support missions. And I'm so thankful that in our country, we have the freedom to vote and to choose our leaders. But beloved, we must understand that the responsibility to be light of the world and salt to the earth begins right here. And that we cannot outsource that to other people. We cannot outsource that in voting. We cannot outsource that to the schools. We cannot outsource that. We must not even be solely a mission funding church, but we must be an on mission church. We must be a church that is involved in the mission, not just sending money to the missions, even though we need to do that too, and use that as a substitute for our own involvement in the mission. We cannot do that. And so this is emphatic. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So we must be committed to our responsibilities in the kingdom. And what are they? They're simply two. You've already heard them. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. So what does that mean? 
It means that we must be always committed to announce the kingdom or announce the gospel and we must always adorn the gospel in our lives. So let's talk about these, beginning in verse 13. Number one, we see that we must be committed to announce the gospel in our lives. Here's what he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, now stop right there a minute and let's talk about what it means to be salt. You see, because the, ancient, the ancients, they had a lot of different uses for salt. It was, it was used for a lot of different things. Uh, it was pretty much, uh, pretty much necessary. It was a requirement for healthy living in the day. You know, they didn't have disinfectant. They didn't have that kind of stuff. And so, so salt was everywhere. In fact, uh, Roman soldiers would actually be paid. One part of their payment was a bag of salt, like, uh, like every, whenever they would get paid. That's where the phrase comes. You hear people say that they're worth their salt or they're not worth their salt or something like that. And so it had a lot of different uses, but the two primary ones were that they were used, first of all, just like we use it today, for seasoning your food, right? And then the other one was for preserving fish or, or other kinds of meat that can be preserved by salt. And so a lot of people ask the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says that you are the salt of the earth? And primarily, most people, when you hear this verse teach, they're, they're gonna say that we are the preservation of the world, that Jesus is calling us to preserve the world, to act as a preservative to the world. Have you guys ever heard that before? And so, so that's kind of the idea. But, you know, and, and they'll, you know, like, they'll like throw, uh, like whenever Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, they'll, they'll kind of throw that story in there. Uh, sometimes they'll even connect it to, you know, voting and, and, those, and politics and those kinds of things. But, but, there's a, but there's a fundamental problem with that that I see. And the problem is this. Beloved, you cannot read any prophetic passage of God's plan for the sick world and think that his goal is to preserve it. God has no interest in preserving this sin-ridden, cursed world. In fact, the environmentalists don't like what we're doing to the earth. Wait till they see what Jesus does to it. <laughs> they are really not gonna like that. And so the idea here, I really don't think is preserving and so if that's the case, then what is the idea? And when we use scripture to interpret scripture, I, I think that uh, another saying of Jesus gives us kind of an idea. In Mark chapter nine, he's using this exact same idea, this exact same metaphor of salt. And in verses 49 and 50, he, he gives basically the exact same words. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. And you see the connection there, right? But in that context, what he's talking about is the need for, his people to remove sin from their lives. In other words, it is cleansing. It is something that we must do that as we are growing in our faith, there should be a growing holy hatred of sin and a growing desire for further holiness. And he even says, look, if your right hand causes offense, if, you're, if it causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, if, your, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And then he goes into that salt metaphor. And one of the uses of salt in the ancient world was that it was a disinfectant. It was a cleansing agent. 
And we even use that today. You know, sometimes you'll get breathing treatment and it's saline, you know, to, to kind of cleanse out your internal lungs and whatever. And, and you use saline for your contacts. Those of us who use contacts and you put it in your eye and, and those kinds of things. Even back then, they began to understand that salt is a cleansing agent. And the idea here is that we are the salt of the earth in that we take the cleansing of the gospel to the earth. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Look what he says. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And what's the result of that? And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these. Beloved, how do we bring God's cleansing power to the earth? We bring it by announcing the gospel and offering the free forgiveness of sins so that they can be cleansed and they can come to Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So salt is cleansing. It is, it is the offer, the free offer of the forgiveness of God for our sins. We are the salt of the earth. And Christ goes on to say that if salt loses its function, if it loses its saltiness, then, then what good is it? The only thing it's good for is to be thrown out and to be trampled. And you know, a lot of commentators talk about, you know, salt is one of the most stable compounds and, and it really can't lose its saltiness if you know anything about chemistry. And, and so they give all these explanations as to how it can happen. And, and, and I read that and I just think about adventures and missing the point. Guys, Jesus is not giving us a chemical formula here. He's, he's using an example that if salt becomes unsalty, then what good is it? And if the church stops preaching the gospel, what good is it? It's only good to be thrown out. It's only good to be trampled under. If we stop doing this, then we might as well take the word church off of our sign and put social club up because that's what we've become. Nothing better. We are to be about the work of the kingdom and the work of the kingdom is announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world for the full forgiveness of sin and new life in Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. When I began preaching, you had to worry about bumper sticker theology. You remember bumper sticker theology? You know, people would put a little pithy little bumper sticker that had something to do with God and sometimes they were right, sometimes they were not so right. Remember those? I don't see those as much anymore. I think people realized how, uh, how ugly they were. But anyway, um, but today you gotta worry about meme theology. Meme theology. Memes are everywhere today. My wife has thousands of memes in her phone and, and she remembers them and she always has the right one for the right occasion. It's, it's just uncanny. But I saw a meme the other day that I really thought captured this perfectly. And it was the idea that, that for most churches today, most churches think of themselves as a cruise ship instead of a battleship. And if you think about the differences between those two, a cruise ship provides relaxation, comfort, and entertainment. Most people relax while only a few people serve. The mission is to make guests happy. 
They, the ones they wanna pick up are consumers. And their philosophy is the customer is always right. But when wartime comes around, the cruise ships, they flee and they get out of the waters and they dock versus a battleship. What does a battleship do? Battleships are not made for comfort. They're not made for relaxation. And if you've ever served on a ship, you know that that is absolutely true. Battleships are not made for comfort or relaxation. They are made for war. They are made for war. And you don't have a situation where a few people, a few people serve and most people relax. It is all hands on deck and everyone is there for one purpose and that is to serve the mission. And the mission is to obey the king, not make everybody happy. Whereas a battleship will pick up customers about, excuse me, a cruise ship will pick up customers, a battleship picks up soldiers and warriors. In a cruise ship, the customer is always right. In a battleship, the king has spoken and we must obey. Whereas a cruise ship docks in the middle of wartime, a battleship runs to the battle. A battleship goes to where the fighting is. They're in the trenches, so to speak. And so we must, we must be a church that is a battleship, not a cruise ship. Too many churches today have the cruise ship mentality. Beloved, we must be a battleship. We must run to the battle, not find safety and comfort and relaxation and consolation in these four walls. But we must be out in the war. So we must commit to announce the gospel. How do we lose our saltiness? We, we must not lose it. How do we lose it? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to not add to the gospel. Not add to the gospel. There is always a temptation. And no matter, and, and when we are, the more we are in the world and the more we are involved in the world, there is always a temptation to bring the wisdom of the world into the church and say, this is how we must grow the church. There's always a temptation to say that, oh, you know, back in my day, it was you have to bring uh, movie clips in and you have to preach from movie clips. And, and then it was, uh, you can't preach doctrine. You can't preach deep doctrine. You can't do any of that. You know, today it's, you must keep your sermons to 15 minutes and have an hour worth of music and, and all this stuff. It's always the wisdom of the world that tempts us to say, this is the way we grow to church. Paul says, I didn't apply the wisdom of the world to the gospel. How dare I? In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse, he says, for it since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Understand, the world will never agree with the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God will always sound like foolishness to the world. And if the effectiveness of the gospel sounds like folly to you, I would ask the question, which one are you more influenced by? Is the Bible controlling your worldview or is the world? That's the question. So don't add the world's wisdom to the gospel. And number two, don't neglect the gospel. Don't neglect the gospel. We have this, we have this awesome 
treasure inside of us. We have this wonderful gift. We have the answers to all the deepest things that we struggle with. Why would we keep that to ourselves? Don't neglect the gospel. Don't add to the gospel and don't neglect it. And so we must be salt of the earth. We must be committed to announce the gospel, but the gospel comes not only by announcement, but it also comes by lives that adorn the gospel. And so we must not only announce the gospel, but we must commit to adorn the gospel in our lives as well. And here's what we go on to see in verses 14 through 16. He says that you are, again, same emphasis, you are the light of the world. And once again, let's just stop right there for a second. The word light has all kinds of nuances in scripture. And you wonder, again, what is Jesus talking about here you know, it's interesting when you do a word study of the word light and you just pull up a basic concordance and you start to kind of look through the verses, you find that the very first, first of all, the very first interaction that God had with the world, the very first thing he said to the universe was what? Let there be what? Let there be light, right? So that's kind of cool. But it, what's interesting is that all throughout the book of Genesis, every time you see the word light, it's always referring to physical light, like you know, like light. I mean, I don't really know how else to describe it. So it's always referring to actual light. But then you get to the Exodus. And in the Exodus, something happens in the wilderness. And do you remember what it was? Do you remember what led them through the desert? What was it? It began in Exodus chapter 13. As they were coming out of Egypt, it says the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And beloved, I submit to you that almost every nuance of God and light, an equation of light with God in the scriptures are based on that experience of Israel. As when, as when they were going at night, think about what all that pillar of fire did for them. It gave them salvation from Egypt, right? It gave them protection. Do you remember when, when they were right at the shore of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming up behind them? What happened? The pillar of fire went out from before them and went behind them and protected them from the enemy so that they were saved, you remember it gave them the law. It guided them through the wilderness. But most importantly, it represented the very presence of God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so it represented the very presence of God. That's why, that's why Jesus in John chapter eight, verse 12, I believe he's in the temple, he's preaching. And in the temple, there was this large fire that represented that pillar of fire. And when Jesus looks at that fire in John eight twelve, he looks at that and he remembers what it represents. And he said, that was me. I am the light of the world. He looks at that very thing that that pillar of fire represents and he says, that, that was me. When I led you through the wilderness, that was me. So Jesus is the light, but wait a minute here. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
Well, which is it? Is it Jesus or is it us? Beloved, what do you think we're reflecting? Does the moon have any light of its own? No. Just as the moon reflects only the light of the sun, so in the same way, we are the light of the world in the sense that we only reflect the light of Jesus to this lost and dying world. Jesus gives two examples here. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. In other words, he's just pointing out how absurd it is to have light and not let it show. How absurd it is to have light and cover it up. Why would we do that? It makes absolutely no sense. I remember when I was driving home from Colorado Springs and, and I can't remember what occasion it was, but I was taking what I call the South Route, which meant I had to go through the Texas Panhandle and oh my goodness, miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of nothing, all right? I mean, like literally nothing. It was flat, it was dark, it was nothing, all right? And, and I was driving for what seemed like hours in this twilight zone, and I remember it was like, it was like two o'clock in the morning and I was just thinking, I am not gonna survive this. And I remember as I came over the horizon of this highway, I began to see the lights of Amarillo, Texas. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm saved. I'm going to live. I am still in this dimension because <laughs> I was really starting to worry that maybe I had crossed over or something, Right? And so I was so happy. And yet, come to find out, Amarillo was still like an hour away. That's how powerful the lights of that city were. You, you cannot hide that. An hour away and I could see it. And yet, and yet beloved, understand something. When, when we read this verse, we tend to think of of, of modern city. We, we think of tall buildings with, with LED bulbs and, and street lights and street lamps that are filled with halogen bulbs. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a group of houses that are dimly lit by candles. And beloved, if you light only one candle, it's not gonna go that far, Right? But if you bring a bunch of candles together and everyone is holding those candles, if, we were, if it were dark right now and there were no electricity and every single one of us in this room got a candle, went outside and held it together, you'd be able to see that from Brother Joe's house. You would see it in the mountains because that's, that's how powerful that light is, especially when you have that corporate effect of bringing the lights together. You say... Randy, I, 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 can't, I can't do what I used to be anymore. I, I, I just can't, I, I can't shine that bright for Christ anymore. Beloved, God is not calling you to be a halogen. He's calling you to be a candle. He's calling you to be a candle. And when all the candles of the church come together, there is a power in that collective light you are the light of the world. Beloved, we can't see this in English, but in Greek, both of this, you are, both of them is plural. He is talking to the church together, corporately. 
We are the light of the world. So what does it mean to adorn our lives with the gospel? What does that mean? Look in, uh, I don't think I have this on the board. Look in, look in Titus chapter two for a moment. Turn with me to Titus chapter two. I want you to see this. Titus chapter two. And in verse one, it says, but as for you, uh, Paul is is talking to Titus, a a young protege pastor there in Crete. And he says, in in Titus chapter two, verse one, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what would we expect to come after that? We would expect the doctrine of justification, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe you would expect Trinitarianism. Or maybe you would expect Soteriology. Or maybe you would expect Ecclesiology. Or maybe you might expect Angelology or Demonology or Bibliology. I'm just showing off at this point. You have to go to seminary a long time to say those words right. So, what was that? Okay, that's what I get. You would expect that something like that to follow, right? But look what Paul follows that up with. What adorns the gospel? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love. Older women, likewise, reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Train the young women to love their husbands and children and be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves to be model of good works, sound speech. And it goes on and on and on. Beloved, that is what adorns the gospel. That is the life that adorns sound doctrine. It is a life that reveals the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. So live your life in a way that adorns the gospel means to live, in a life, live your life in a way that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. It's not about what you know. It's about who you love. It's about who you love. And beloved, you may not ever to be able to say those big words that I just said and, and, and you may not know what they mean and guess what? You don't have to. But you know what you do have to do? You have to love Jesus and you have to love his people, and you have to love the world. That's what matters. I don't care if you know four-syllable words, but I do care that you love Christ, and I do care that you love people. So don't adorn, live lives that adorn the gospel, and number two, don't act like the world. Don't act like the world. In fact, you're already in Titus. Look over just one page for most of us in verse 16. It says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You may profess to know God. You may profess to know Christ, but what do your works say? What do your works say? What do your works say about your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have a sour attitude? Are you complaining and bickering on Facebook? Are you rude and inconsiderate? Kids, do you throw fits when you don't get your way? 
Are you mean and cruel to your classmates, to your teachers, to your friends, or the weird kids who sits alone in the cafeteria? Are you, are you, are you taking part in the latest TikTok challenges? If you're doing all that, then why in the world should the church listen to a word you say about Jesus? Why in the world would the world listen to you if you're doing all that? If you're living just like them? What evidence do you have? What weight does your confession give? I hear people all the time, I'm just so tired of organized religion. I'm so tired of the hypocrites. I'm tired of seeing all these supposed Christians at school who are the worst people. Well, let me ask you a question. What are you adding to the equation? What are you adding? What are you adding to the church? What are you adding to the school? You will never you will never change anything by adding more and more of the same. You must be different to make a difference. You say, Randy, all this talk about good works, is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, look at Matthew 5, verse 17, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, watch this, so that they may see your good works. And so our lives must adorn the gospel so that they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not so that they will just recognize, hey, he's a good person, glory to God, but so that they will see your life and they will be attracted to the gospel. And that through your life and through your testimony and because your life gives weight to your words, that they will come to know Christ and through their salvation, they will give glory to God. And so will you. And so, beloved, if we're going to be salt and light, we must commit our lives to announce the gospel and to adorn the gospel in our lives. Those are our two core responsibilities that Jesus has given us, the two core responsibilities of a disciple. And so the question is, what can we do? What can you do this week? What, what is something different that you can commit to? What, where can you go? How can we commit to this this week? And how can we be salt and light? And, and, I, and I love the example, and, and we're gonna hit this text even harder here in the future, but, but just for today's purposes, I want you to see these two verses and how Jesus brought himself to the world. I want you to notice what he did. How do we do this? How do we, how do we change this week? Well, number one is that I want you to notice in Matthew chapter nine, in verse 35, it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. I want you to notice, first of all, that we must enter their world. Enter their world. Get to know them. Ask them questions. Find out who they are. Listen to their stories. Find out what, what it is that influences them. It's like the father who, who says, you know, I, I just cannot relate to my son. I cannot relate to anything he wants to do. All he wants to do is sit around and play video games all day long. 
Well, it sounds to me, Dad, like you need to learn how to play a video game or two. Enter their world. Find out what they're about. Listen to what they're doing. Well, I don't have any interest in video games. Do you have any interest in your son? You see, enter their world. Find out what makes them tick. Understand where they're coming from. Enter their world. And notice number two, what he does. Understand their heart. Understand their heart. He says in in verse uh, 36, and when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Understand their hearts. Under, be able to understand what the Bible says about, about the heart and understand how this individual is expressing those truths in their lives. In other words, diagnose them scripturally. Diagnose them biblically. Biblical diagnosis. And then number three, what did Jesus do? Offer Jesus and his answers. Offer Jesus and his answers. Beloved, who do you know this week that you can do a better job of entering their world? Who do you know this week that you can do a better job of understanding their heart? Who do you know this week that you can offer Jesus and his answers to? That's how we can be salt and light in this world. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, then you cannot be salt and light, but we want to offer Jesus and his answers to you. You see, because Jesus entered our world. He came to us. He came to the sin-sick world. He came and he lived that perfect righteousness. He was completely God. He was completely man. And he lived always under the will of his father. He never sinned, not even once. And then he went to the cross and he died on the cross in punishment, not for his own sins, but for ours. And because he died on the cross for our sins, he can offer us forgiveness. He can offer the cleansing that you're looking for. He can offer a clean slate. He can offer new life. And we know this is true because three days later, he didn't stay dead, but God raised him from the dead. And now he has ascended to the right hand of God and he's offering himself to you as a savior, as a deliverer, as a rescue from God's own wrath. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you have not taken that message and applied it to your life, then I wanna show you how you can respond in biblical faith to him. If you're here this morning, I would ask you that if you would come to the front and, 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 and we will go to the back after church is over and we'll talk about it and I can show you from the scripture how you can respond in faith alone to Christ alone in Jesus Christ. And again, ladies, if you're not, if you're more comfortable talking with a lady, Miss Bobby's back there, Miss Vanita, there's several ladies who would love to talk with you if you would come and you would know Christ. Beloved, let's be salt and light to the world. Will you commit to that this week? Will you enter their world? Will you understand their heart? And will you offer Jesus and his answers to them? That's what they're looking for. They don't know it, but that's what they're looking for. Let's give it to them. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for 
your wonderful way in which you have come and you have given us salvation. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who does not know Christ as their Savior, I ask that you will are already speaking to their hearts and you're already speaking with them. Lord, if there's one here who, for whatever reason, have not been salt in the world, they have been showing the, the characteristics of the world instead of the core characteristics of a disciple. They're not growing in their faith. They've been... They've been distracted by other things. I pray you would bring them back to yourself. And Father, most of all, I pray that you would work amongst our midst this morning. Bring us all back to you. And as a church, make us salt and light to this world. Let's stand together. I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads for a few minutes and, and reflect on the things that we've talked about. Just ask yourself this morning, is there someone that I can enter their world this morning a little better? Is there someone I need to understand their heart better? Or is there someone that I need to offer Jesus and his answers to? I just ask you to reflect on that this morning for a little while as the musicians play. Mm -hmm.